Thanks to Canva for supporting Don't Keep Your Day Job. Canva is an easy-to-use design platform that has everything you need to design like a pro. Get a free 45-day extended trial by going to canva.me slash dreamjob. Hey, this is Kathy Heller. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. So I'm so excited about today's episode because Anne Lamott is here. I can't wait to dive into that. But first, I do want to tell you that I'm doing something I've never done before, and I'm so excited about it. We're doing a retreat, a day-long retreat virtually on April 11th from 10 to 6. And I'm just so grateful that we can gather virtually. Like It's amazing how COVID has opened up the possibility that we can connect in this way. And so this is really something I've been wanting to do for so long. I've been missing the retreats I used to do in person, but we've done a couple bite-sized things like this where we've had people come in and lead meditation and lead breath work on Zoom. And it's actually, it's pretty powerful. So this is going to be a day long on Sunday, April 11th with me. It's called Welcome Soul. And um, if you want to get information about it, you can go to welcomesoul.com or you can go to kathyheller.com slash retreat, either way, because it's really about welcoming you home, welcoming you back to you. And it's going to be a day of reflection and introspection, some meditation, some journaling, some manifesting, some uh, breath work, and a few guest stars are going to make an appearance and we'll spend a day looking at what's really here and how to help you step into your calling and how to help you have a feeling of transcendence and to really feel transformation through this work. I'm really excited about it. There are limited spots and um, we're doing early bird pricing. It's like $197 for this day-long retreat. So if you want to come join me, go grab your spot go to kathyheller.com slash retreat. And if you have any questions, you can email us at hello at don'tkeepyourdata.com or you can send me a DM on Instagram. But I can't wait. I'm really looking forward to doing this kind of work and coming together and just sharing this sort of higher level vibration. All right. Well, I'm so thrilled because Today we have such a brilliant guest. Anne Lamott is joining us. She's a best-selling author of 19 books. She's also an activist, speaker, and writing teacher. She's been part of Oprah's Super Soul Sunday. She also has a TED Talk, and there was even a documentary made about her called Bird by Bird with Annie. You might have read one of her many books like Bird by Bird or Small Victories or Almost Everything, Hallelujah Anyways, and she has another gorgeous book that just came out. It's called Dusk, Night, Dawn on revival and courage. It explores the thorny issues of life by breaking them down into manageable human-sized questions to ponder, and it'll help you be guided through life's dark places and amplify the small moments of joy through love and connection. I loved reading this book. I highly recommend that you get your copy right after you listen to this conversation. Anne has been honored with a Guggenheim Fellowship, plus she was inducted into the California Hall of Fame And even though she has all these accolades and she's sold millions and millions of copies of books around the world, she's just so present and so real. She's not afraid to be vulnerable about her struggles and imperfections, and she's so generous. I think this is what truly makes her such a remarkable person. Without further ado, please welcome the wonderful Anne Lamott. 
And thank you so much for coming to be with us. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. So I want to go down this journey with you. I mean, I'm holding in my hands your beautiful new book. And I wanted to just hear a little bit about the story of how you even found your way to writing. Like, where does this start for you? Well, um, I was always a good storyteller. I always could get my friends on the blacktop to gather around or they would come to me because they would want to um, hear my version of what they had all experienced collectively. And Mm. I was just a voracious reader. And that was probably more important than anything. You know, I went to college and I dropped out to become a writer. I was 19 years old and I didn't have a clue, but I did have a father who was a writer. And he taught me really the most important lessons of all, which is that you don't wait for inspiration. You you create the habit. You sit down every day and you just do it no matter how you're feeling and no matter whether you really know what you're going to be doing that day. You just do it by prearrangement with yourself that you sit down at nine every day and you work for a while. So after that, I was off and running, and I was very blessed to get a job at 20 with um, a Billie Jean King sports magazine that was called Women's Sports, and then I was off and running. You know, I had deadlines, and I had harder and longer material that I learned to create and fashion and edit and then present. Wow. So cool. Thank you for sharing some of this with us. It's so generous. I'm sure you've shared this story so many times. I feel like one of the biggest things for our audience is this feeling of being afraid to do things that are messy, to be in that creative process. Mm -hmm. And when you said, you know, you just like made a time to sit down and write, Mm -hmm. how do you find your way through to where the light starts to come? I'm not positive the light ever actually comes. I just, if I have something I'm working on or I've started and I'm, I'm uh, letting myself do it, it goes badly most days, but I just stick with it. Every draft I write is way too long and kind of overwritten. I just keep doing it over and over and taking stuff out and figuring out what's missing. And then I always have a friend who's a really excellent writer who I trust and I ask him or Neil my husband is really a great editor for me and I ask them to take a look at it and tell me what they think works or what doesn't work and then I decide whether I agree with them (laughs) I hate criticism but I'm incredibly grateful for being steered right because they only want to help me make the piece better and uh, you know I do probably three or four anything I've written that you might have liked I've done three or four drafts of but I'm not sure that I could identify light ever coming on. (laughs) I love that you just laid out how there's the process of writing and then there's this longer process of editing where like it's, it's almost that you spend more time in the editing of something. Is that, is that fair to say? Um, No, I don't think that's quite right, but I spend a lot of time editing. I spend a lot of time shaping and deleting you know Jessica Mitford said famously you need to kill your little darlings and I go through the book slowly and I I delete everything that just is too show-offy or just trying to be too erudite or too comic so that people won't think I'm a depressive 
So the edit does take a long time, but the writing takes longer. And that first draft is the hardest, hardest, hardest part of it at all. It's scary to do things that aren't yes. don't look good and aren't presentable. Yes. And to hear that coming from you is, it gives people a lot of permission to hear that coming out of out of you. You know, you you've written books that have landed for millions and millions and millions of people. And it strikes me that you have so much empathy that you can really feel something that is so universal. Do you have a practice or some kind of a process where you drop in? How does that show up for you vis-a-vis what then comes out in your writing? Well, probably like you, an idea will sort of float into my head like a goldfish because I am open for business. This is what I want to do when I grow up and I'm available (laughs) for any ideas or memories or insights. I'm available. I'm available because I say I am and because I ask the great universal spirit to help me be available and permeable and curious about all of life. And so ideas come into my head or a memory will come in. And unlike a lot of people who maybe are starting out or who don't feel like they're getting anywhere, I write it down. I always scribble it down on a um, index card. I have very fair skin so I can write on my forearm or the back of my hand and then transcribe it later. But uh, the, probably the difference between me and a lot of your listeners is I get it down. I don't judge it as either being something that will turn into something else, lead to something else. If it came in and it got my attention, I write it down. I love that. This is what I want to do when I grow up. Well, you've certainly done it and are doing it. And and I love this idea, like I'm available. I'm available for it to come in. I feel like the most universal thing I've heard from our audience is this overwhelming feeling of feeling like a fraud, feeling like I want to paint, I want to sculpt, I want to write, but I have this feeling of who am I to do this? Have you ever thought that thought? It seems it would be shocking to me if you did, but at the same time, since you're a human, it wouldn't be shocking to me at all. But I'm curious how, if you've had that thought, how you've overcome that. Oh, I think it all the time, and I mostly think it um, every day when I first sit down, and I think it whenever I start anything new. I think, oh, what a fraud. What do I know? And then I think, boy, I bet the well has run dry, and I'm not going to be able to pull it off this time. And then I start to write, and I think, oh, man, talk about beating a dead horse. And, you know, you just, I heard when I first got sober, you take the action and the insight will follow. And to me, that means that figure it out is not a good mantra. And, um, and so I, I just don't try to figure this stuff out. I just feel like I have this thing inside of me that wants to write and that wants to help me get it written. And so I just take the action. I just do the writing and it goes badly. And then I know I've been doing this for 45 years professionally. And I know that if I just start and I let myself write badly, that it'll quiet those critical voices inside of me. That's so good. It's so good. You have no idea what this is like medicine for our listeners to hear you. Well, I'd like to know how you got so many listeners, so many creative people that tune into you every week. Oh my gosh. In 400 episodes, you're the first person to ask me. A- 
just have curiosity. My husband's written a book and has a website called My Mind Has Gone Blank, shapesoftruth.com, and it's a spiritual book about quieting, largely about quieting the inner critic, and his indication that he's onto, onto something on his daily walk of both spirituality and creativity is that he gets his curiosity back, you know? And that's something that we had as children. It turned out to not seem all that effective to the parents and teachers because what they loved was us doing better than anybody else in the class. Right. Right. And so to be the kid that was kind of the absent-minded professor, which I also was, and just to have that endless curiosity about life and the how do these green shoots that are breaking through the, gar- <laughs> the concrete garden tile right outside my window, how do they break through concrete? But so I think that you probably started your podcast because you have that curiosity, both in your own creative life and also something that you could offer to other people that like you. But how did you, how did you suck them in? I love you. I'm I'm literally uh I'm just so touched by this uh moment. The fact that you would even ask this. I know to you you're like, what this is just me. I just heard John Cabot Zinn say the other day, in the beginner's mind there are endless possibilities. Right. In the expert's mind there are few. Right? Like when we right. think that we know what we know, That's we lose so much yeah. magic, right? Yeah. So how Was did he I on your show? Not yet, but I do adore him. I He's do great. Too. He's so lovely and sweet because he's so immersed <laughs> in the ordinary, you know, in the breath yeah. and each footstep. But um, Neil also at Shapes of Truth has a thing I love that's very, very much what you were just saying, which was one of the keys to the kingdom of inside reserves of, of new material and insight and awakening is, I don't know. You know, I don't know. What's going to happen later today? Is the thing I'm doing tonight going to go okay? I don't know. What am I writing? I don't even know if I'm writing a, a novel or another book on creativity. or I don't know. Yeah. But that opens up. That is the key to the kingdom because then instead of being in my pinball mind where I'm trying to figure it all out and, and kind of horse it into submission and being able to tell people what I'm up to or what how it's going... Instead, I step out into this kind of spacious, this glade, right? A glade where I can look around and go, wow, I never noticed that ring of redwoods. I never noticed that one knot hole. It's so big. I wonder what's inside. I'm going to go look because you know what? I don't know. Yes. And this is why I think the podcast went well, because I... Of course, I. who doesn't know who you are, right? Of course, I know who you are and I have the books, but I don't have an agenda. I kind of just want to be here with you. And I'm, I, I, I love what you just said about being in the great unknown because so often people want some exhilarating experience. So they jump out of an airplane or who knows what. But if you want to feel the most unleashed, how about really stepping into the spontaneity of a moment without predetermining what you need to do to prep or how it's going to go. Yeah. Just trusting the moment to lead you there. Well, the best line I ever heard about writing, beside my father singing about bird by bird, was E.L. Doctorow saying that writing is like driving at night with the headlights on. You can only see a little ways in front of you, but you can make the whole journey that way. 
right? And that so is so good. not me because um, I'm so anxious. I'd like to know what I'm going to see in a mile or so, what the landmarks will be, and plus when I get to my destination, what should I look for, what is everybody else made of it, and plus I secretly can't wait to get back home anyway. So to be willing to do the journey knowing that you can only see, you know, 20 feet in front of you, and to sort of immerse yourself in, in those 20 feet is, to me, the secret of life and be, of beginner's mind. Ah. Uh. So beautiful. It's so beautiful. I just came from spending a week with Dr. Joe Dispenza. And it's all about just like dropping into this unknown, just, just this heart coherence, right? When you're in the state of open hearted vibration, there's no way to control, right? That takes you right Uh out of it. And when you're in that flow, there is the magnet, right? Now you're in this like force field where you're uh-huh. playing in this ease, right? And right. and maybe things don't need to be pushed and hard. Maybe they can actually just be in a state of allowing. We can find something there. So uh-huh. of all the times, this book that you just wrote, this beautiful book. Thank you. What a perfect, talk about like synchronicity, the timing of this message and this book. I mean- it's almost like you knew that the world needed this hug, which is this book. Well, um, the last book, Almost Everything, Thoughts on Hope, was originally called Doomed because the world was so bleak, even two years ago. And this remember Australia was on fire. Oh, my God, yeah. The UN Climate Change papers had just come out. And everywhere I went to talk about this book on hope, people didn't feel any hope. They felt exhausted and sad and scared. Mm-hmm. And this is a year before covid so I decided to just write a book that would, well, be about, would be about that. Like, where do we start? How do we get our hope back? How do we get our faith in life that something supports us no matter what things look like or how long they take? And, you know, I always tell my writing students, write what you'd love to come upon because um, that tells you something deep inside of your soul is um, really trying to get your attention. And I love to come upon books like this that are funny and sort of acerbic, but also spiritual, and that have a solution for that day's fear or feeling of of being flattened by life. That just made me want to cry when you said, right, what you would want to come upon. It's like your soul immediately knows, ah, I want to hear this, right? I I wish I could hear this. Mm -hmm. And um, I know that on your virtual book tour, you're you're chatting with Janine Roth, And I just found that fascinating because I love you and I've been floored. I know I'm late to the party, but I only this year read Women, Food and God, and I have not been able to stop talking about it. And because there's something that she's able to facilitate that you also do in this book, which is make space for the darkness. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Sure. About welcoming it to the table. Yeah. The the problem for most of us, and certainly with all of our collective eating disorders and our bad body thoughts and our going without food and our shaming ourselves if we think we eat all of that and let alone our creative blocks and our blocks around intimacy and they all have to do with pretending so much of it us isn't really there because we yeah. think that we will be exiled or um, people will find us disgusting whereas Janine and I you can get the podcast at her Facebook page it's the way home, you know, to welcome all the dark stuff, to say it's universal. 
you know, I don't have any shame or self-doubt that you don't have, and you don't have any that I don't have. It's just the nature, uh, it's the human condition. It's that ping pong game of, you know, of slowly evolving self-love and self-respect and kindness towards self. And then that on the other side of the ping pong table, the self-doubt and the meanness and the shame and the perfectionism. So, I mean, Women, Food, and God is one of the most brilliant books literally I've ever read. It's like every single thing I need to know about all of life. And so much of it has to do with welcoming all that shadow stuff in and finding people who are so safe that you can say to them, do you have a minute? I want to tell you about something that's come up. I hate it and it's kind of scary, but I think it might need a little attention and sunlight. And the person, since you only have probably three of those people, isn't going to say, oh, no, I I really, if it's negative, I don't want it. You know, they're not going to say that. They're going to say, of course I do. What is it? And you tell them, they go, oh, me too. I have that all the time. I had it so badly. I was so scared on Sunday. I woke up with that bad voice. And I um, called my Overeaters Anonymous sponsor, or I, I texted my minister, or I told my husband. And we ended up laughing about it. And then once I was laughing, I was halfway home. You know, laughter really is carbonated holiness. And when we laugh about that dark, scary stuff. Also, Trevor Noah said last week, when you laugh with someone, you know you've really shared something. And that's so beautiful to me because when you're sharing this stuff, instead of trying to lock it in the very highest drawer in the psychic garage, it just is going to keep running you. But to share it, to tell it, to get some sunlight on it, and to laugh about it is a small miracle and it's always a solution for me yeah and i feel like that's why you are such a lighthouse for people because you can hold space first for what hurts and welcome it like you said to the table and then offer a little bit of that joy and it doesn't feel fake or forced I think that there's so much of this like positive thinking, you know, like white knuckle it, say this to yourself every day. But if there's a part of you that's doing that while at the same time shaming the parts of you that you do not want to witness, that's not going to go very far. And one of the best things in her book is the idea that the medicine for the pain is is the pain, right? Feeling it. and, And then as you feel it, you're practicing the opposite of self-abandonment. And then you you realize there's something bigger than the pain holding the pain. Yeah. And so that journey I felt was such a beautiful backdrop to what you're doing in this book, which is tell us what you said before about what would you want people to come upon? What were you hoping people would walk away with from reading this? I was hoping that they would walk away with hope because the book is so much about the hope of ordinary life, like we don't need to have mystical experiences, we don't need to, you know, be tapped on the head by God who doesn't have a magic wand anyway, which I think would be a much better system. But (laughs) there is is hope in, in our love for each other, there is hope in the precious community, there is hope in service, that if you're bringing people food, that gives them hope because they can feed their child and maybe there'll be more food tomorrow. And if you're bringing the hope, then you're surrounded by hope. If you brought the hope, you got hope in the environment again. I wanted to help people really laugh about this stuff, this business of being human. 
I wanted to help people know, like, where do you begin? Where do you begin making a comeback from addiction or a childhood that was just so scary or abusive? Where do you get started creatively? Where do you start? Well, the answer to all of those is that you start where you are. You know, you start where your butt is and you let yourself not do it perfectly. You break through the perfectionism by doing it badly more often, you know. And you find people that will help you. If you're a writer or an artist, you find somebody who will give you the feedback, who will say always that they love it or they're going to love it. And they're wondering if maybe you want to take out some of this stuff and use it elsewhere. And that you think that on page, the very bottom of page two, the piece really takes off and that the first page and a half is really just clearing their throat. And maybe try a new lead, which is the sentence that is the last paragraph at the bottom of page two. Always, always, always someone helping you will point out that you've gone on too long and that the ending is seven pages before you end it. You know, it really ends on a dime way earlier than you end it. And, and maybe try to write to that new ending, stuff like that. You know, when I travel, when, when we're not in lockdown, I'm usually either talking about faith or writing, and I can actually bring the notes for either thing because they're exactly the same. You start where you are, you start where your feet are, you breathe, you go left foot, right foot, left foot, breathe. You ask for help. It's okay to ask. There's no shame in asking for a lot of help. You read the great masters. You sit at their feet. You study how they conveyed their understanding of life and what works and what has really maybe helped keep us safe and we don't need anymore. Neil's book and website, uh, Shapes of Truth, are very much about quieting the inner critic. And I call it, you read Dust Night Dawn. There's a chapter that begins, Dread was my governess growing up. Neil uses the phrase superego. And he just is so brilliant about how it kept us alive, you know, till the age of six or seven. We, it kept us from running out into the street or swimming out too far. And we don't really need it now. I'm going to be 67 in a month. And I, I'm really good about cr crossing the street. <laughs> and I'm a really strong swimmer. And I never swim alone. But that, what Neil calls a superego, or my governess dread, same thing, are always going to appear. And what I tried to do before I met Neil was to just eradicate it. And you know what? My friend Terry, who's an aged Diocesan priest in L.A., he says, we don't get over much here. And so I'm always going to hear the voice of dread trying to keep me small and afraid and to not do things that might not be perfect. But I can invite her to the table and I can say, God, you did such an amazing job. You kept me alive. I was a you know, impetuous little child. I couldn't wait to get to the next place I was headed. And I thank you for that. But I'm wondering if you, you know, I've got this incredible thriller I'm writing, right, reading right now. I wonder if you <laughs> might want to sit down. I've got work to do, but you might want to sit down and just see if you give this book a go and we'll talk later. This conversation is so good. Before we keep going, we're just going to thank our sponsor. If you need a quick, easy and affordable way to design whatever you need, then you need Canva. No matter what your experience or skill level, Canva Pro can help boost your productivity and creativity and get you designing like a pro. With a subscription, Canva Pro has everything you need in one place, including a collection of over 75 million premium photos, videos, audio, and graphics. I've had an account with Canva for years, even before I started this podcast. 
We love it so, so much. And we use Canva every single day. If you've seen any of the audiograms on my Instagram feed or the graphics on my stories, then you've seen the magic that we've been able to create all things to Canva. And having the Canva Pro account has just completely made a difference in our branding because of all the templates and the graphics and the photos and the fonts that you can access so easily in their library. It's really such a game changer and I can't recommend it enough. Design like a pro with Canva Pro. Get a free 45-day extended trial by going to canva.me slash dreamjob. That's C-A-N-V-A dot M-E slash dreamjob. I love how you said that you're either speaking about faith or writing and you can use the the same notes because they're they're so similar. And when we had Julia Cameron on the show, she speaks so much about writing and also so much spirituality comes out of her mouth. And And I said to her, I've never heard somebody use the word God so often without any kind of, there was nothing heavy about it. It's just right. like, she's so dropped into that. Right. How did you find your way home spiritually? How do you connect? So many people have such a tough time connecting to something in the great beyond. Well, I kind of, I think came this way, although my parents were atheists and you weren't allowed to talk about it. My grandfather was a Presbyterian missionary in Tokyo, so my father was raised there. Wow. And, um, you know, Presbyterians, which actually I became, are called God's frozen chosen. And um, my <laughs> father just hated Christianity. And I always found Christian friends. The Catholic girl first, who told me I was going to rot in hell for all eternity because I wasn't a baptized Catholic. And um, so that was helpful. And then um, a Christian science friend that I, whose house I really grew up at and who I still see three or four times a week for a hike 60 years later. Um, and her mother was reading Mary Baker Eddy to us every morning. And Mary Baker Eddy really is the mother of new thought, you know, of Eckhart Tolle and Marianne Williamson. And she just thought I was beautiful and perfect and that there was only love. And something inside of me just gobbled it up. And I tried to not be a Christian because my father hated Christians so much. And, and I really, really read a lot of the great masters in every um, tradition, wisdom tradition. And I still read the great masters in every wisdom tradition. But when I was still drinking, I sort of accidentally ended up at this funny, failing little church <laughs> in the, uh, really what you'd have to call, especially back then, 35 years ago, it was... It's a ghetto, you know, it's a very, very poor place in a very rich county. And I loved the little church. I knew a lot of the songs they sang from the civil rights movement, which my parents were very involved in, and, and the Weavers and Joan Baez and the great songs of freedom and liberation. And I'd hear them wafting out when I was at the flea market, severely hungover. And um, I wandered in and, and they didn't try to get me to do it's like with Julia Cameron she doesn't try to get you she doesn't have a position she wants you to come over to and they didn't either they could just see that I was scared I was emaciated I was probably smelly and I had you know I had a little crummy little bike I got around on and little by little I just stopped resisting at all you know and my friend Terry who I already just quoted in uh, LA said the point is not to try harder. The point is to resist less. And mm-hmm. um, and I just stopped resisting the songs and the spirit. You know, the it, it was a little sanctuary church during Vietnam. And it was a real 
Black Lives Matter church 40 years before the, the formal movement. And um, I just found a home there. And I just stopped trying to resist that. That takes so much strength. I, I heard um, a woman recently whose daughter just had a horrible brain injury in a, in a freak accident. I heard her say, hope is excruciating. And I wanted to bring it back to your journey and also to what you said about the book, wanting to offer hope. And when I hear about people, when you share stories the way you just did, it's so courageous to take those baby steps, right? To mm-hmm. to be willing to show up and not escape or numb whatever you were not wanting to feel whenever you were, you know, not sober. And to keep showing up and not resisting something that feels good, that's really hard to do, especially when we've all been through so much. Mm-hmm. How do people begin to step into the sun when at first it hurts your eyes, right? You're scared to let it in. You're scared not to resist it. It's just, it's scary and it's hard. And anyone that hands you a nice Christian bumper sticker is not somebody I want to trust because truth and grace don't arrive in cute bumper stickers and you go out into the light and you blink and it's awful and it um, is scary and then you run back inside and then you make yourself a lovely cup of tea and you give yourself total kudos for that courage like you would a girlfriend you'd say oh my you went outside wow good for you And then little by little, it doesn't hurt your eyes so much. And then little by little, you start noticing that here and there are things that actually do help and do work in terms of building, you know, it's kind of like soul nautilus, you know, you do things afraid, you know, do it scared is a good battle cry. And then you build soul muscles. And then you can try harder and harder things like to actually talk to other people And then you find other people who are going through what you've gone through or are right in the smack dab in the middle of, and you share your experience, strength, and hope. And they say stuff that blows your mind. And you think, how could you possibly feel faith in life again after what you've lost? And then they say, well, I like to, I try to notice what's still here. And it's pretty magical. If I, there was this guy in, um, who helped Bill Wilson get AA off the ground. Uh, he was not himself an alcoholic. He was a priest. In 1935, he said to Bill, um, sometimes I think that heaven is just a new pair of glasses, you know. And so you can have the glasses on that, are, that have blinders on and you see so little that way. And you see what you're able to tolerate, what you're able to look up and see. But if you, with intention, change glasses, being aware that to see so much that's vulnerable and precious and and maybe even your own deepest inside injured little kid, but you have these good pair of glasses on, you see the courage that it takes and you see the beauty that, that that courage is manifesting for other people. It's also, it's like Rumi said, through love, all pain will turn to medicine. And so you find somebody you love and who you can trust and you tell them this stuff and they tell you their stuff and it sucks. My best friend's son just died two months ago and it sucks. He was 23, he was a perfect 
being. And it sucks. And it was a grace-filled, light-filled experience for both the boy who died, Mason, and for the family. And she wrote a book called um, The Opposite of Certainty. And I quote, I mention it a lot in Dust Night Dawn. She talks about lunch money face. And that, you know, you just want to exude and, and hold this extravagant faith that everything will turn into blessing and that everything happens for a reason and whatnot. And she, she reminded me of when we were kids and it, Tuesday, at least in California, it was hot dog day. And you got a quarter, <laughs> never more, never less, because a quarter bought you a hot dog, a bag of chips, which cost five cents back in the day, and a, a carton of orange drink. It was incredibly good and freezing cold. <laughs> and, um, and so she talks about lunch money faith, that if she just looked around every day, she'd get just the right amount. She'd get she'd never more, never, but never less, but enough. Mm. It's really perfect. I love it so much. It makes it feel attainable, that little bit. And and not just attainable, but available and in you right now, once you stop resisting. Or also, it's like with Neil saying that I don't know. I don't know what it would look like, but you think you know. It should look like this, that I stop crying. Crying is the very, very best thing any of us can do so hard because we have all been shamed into stiff upper lipping it and getting over it and and having you know the battle my parents battle cry was and my teacher's battle cry when I was coming up was you have got to get thicker skin well you know I would have loved to have thicker skin but what they were saying was we would all be much happier to be around you if you were a completely different person, right? which is not helpful. And the reason I'm a creative being is because I don't have thick skin. I have really thin skin. I'm permeable. Stuff gets in me. Stuff comes out of me. And if you're going to be an artist, you better be, you know, like a tide pool where water of life and of families and of the celestial washes over you and through you and sloshes around inside of you and brings you the krill and the tiny shells and the keyhole limpets and then you work with it, you feel it, you sit down with it and then you, it washes back out over anyone who might read you or come upon what you've been up to all this time. So beautiful. I was going to ask you this question from the standpoint of of talking about hope and letting the light in. Recently, I we had a friend of mine here, Allison Bird, who's beautiful African American, powerful, fierce woman, and she was talking about how stepping into our power can be so relatable, and yet for so many people, she said, we have this feeling of remorse. Like, who am I to be? Yeah happy? Who am I to be joyful? Who am I to, I need to run back to those who aren't. And she says, but you have to run back with the medicine, which is your power. Step into your power, right? Enjoy your life. Like, and women, especially she was talking about, you know, like coming through the patriarchy, there's this like apologizing for joy. Don't be too happy. Don't shine too brightly. You'll, you'll, you'll hurt someone else. And so just the offering of hope is triggering for some people sometimes as like, well, if I really showed up and, and let the light in, people might judge me or walk out of the door. or I might feel guilty and ashamed of the light. What do you think about that? Well, I think one of the blessings of being a little bit older, i.e. in what I like to think of as extremely late middle age, is that some of that 
chips off, you know, or I think of it as that through love, through therapy, through recovery, through a deepening daily spiritual walk, you realize how much stupid stuff you've been carrying around in your airplane for all these years and it just has kept you flying so low, you know, barely skimming the treetops. By 50, everyone's lost somebody that should still be alive that you really can't live without too. And so you realize that, that you've got to get serious about how you're going to live in the face of the mort- our mortality and how much longer are you going to be mean to yourself because... Yeah. You have really cellulite thighs, you know? How much longer are you going to try to get, like I've been trying for 45 years to get the New York Times book review to take me seriously, and they just don't. It's just not going to happen for me. And and at about 50, I realized I was kind of done. Now, I'm kind of triggered every time. I'm triggered this time. But it's really brief, I'm triggered briefly instead of like for the entire two weeks or a month of publication. You know, when I was a kid in the 50s and then early 60s, you just, women were not taught that they could be juicy and bright, that it was the men that were juicy and bright and everything the women did went into help pumping up the men so they could make the living and getting the men out of their despair so that there would be trickle down and they'd be nicer to the wife who could then nourish the children. And that was the system, you know, and that was the owner's manual. And it's a long way back from that belief system. And, you know, it's almost like if you are too juicy or bright, it's like the evil eye is going to look at you or that long bony finger is going to come down out of the sky. And say, <laughs> you, you signed the contract that you wouldn't glow like this. I happen to be really good at math. Girls weren't supposed to be. It was fine that I was a great storyteller or I could write well. That was could be a girl thing. But you, I wasn't supposed to be better than the boys in math because it made them feel bad. And it wasn't uh, assumed that I could go anywhere with it. You know, but the women's movement came out when I was about 16, the first issue of Ms. Magazine, and that changed everything. That was, you know what? I am going to have all these feelings and emotions that you've said I can't have. I am angry, and I am grief-struck, and I am going to exhibit those, and I am really good at math, and I'm going to stop feeling bad about that. I always did well. I never stopped doing well. I stopped feeling sort of shy about it, that I'm better than the boys in my class. So for me, and I, I bet it's true for you, although how old are you? You look very young. Oh, that's old awesome. you. 41. No way. Well, you have beautiful skin. That's a blessing. <laughs> yeah. You. But even, you know, my 40s, um, I loved because the 30s were sort of transitional. You had one foot in, what are you going to make of yourself, Right. A lot of people had their babies then and in 20s and 30s. And for me, I was still kind of obsessed with trying to get my body. I had a, let's see, when I turned 40, I had a five-year-old. I was a single mother. I didn't have a cent. I had a lot of love. I've been born and raised in the same county I live in. And um, I had a lot of love, but I still had these Swiss cheese holes in me, in my soul. But you sort of know by about 40 because of all that you've read and, and the brilliance of your very best friends, that the stuff that's out there that you can achieve or date or marry or buy or lease is not going to fill those holes. And you start to get serious about the spiritual uh, and the psychological healing 
And I loved my 40s, you know, because I really stepped into a shape that had been waiting for me all along, where I no longer cared quite as much about my butt, you know. And I realized that when you go to heaven, you know, it's 197th on the list of what mattered here was what your butt looked like. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that, you know, and Sam, my son Sam, who has a podcast called Hello Humans, what does he say? It's something very much about no longer caring about this stupid stuff that you've been so obsessed with yeah. that you're not, you don't seem to get anywhere with. Every single time I publish, I'm going to feel angry and slightly bitter and slightly shamed that the white male East Coast literati has not chosen me as its it girl. And, but at 40, God, I felt a lot less tweaked by that. I feel like, oh God, whatever. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you two things about that. One of the things I was going to say is, is right in line with this whole conversation. I feel like we are all as women, I think we're taught to be good. You know, we're taught to be nice. And uh, unfortunately, good most of the time means being compliant and conforming. And then as you get older, you start to realize, wait, what if I don't want to be good or nice? Yeah. And and so as you were talking about things that you start to realize don't matter, you are someone who is very, very courageous and puts so much out in the world. How have you learned to be okay with the people who won't like it and stick to yourself and not be good, not be nice, but just be authentic? Well, you know, I am so good and I am so nice and I am kind, you know, I just am. And uh, my friend David Roach, R-O-A-C-H, do you know him? He's the pastor of the Church of 80% Sincerity. Oh, everybody. oh my God, that's the best Yeah, just go title. on, David Roach in the Church of 80% Sincerity. And he says 80% of anything is just fantastic. 80% honesty, 80% um, sweetness and goodness, 80% authentic, 80% of anything. It just, when I became friends with him 20 years ago and started to become a member of that church, it just so freed me. And then I still don't do cruel things. I have really bad thoughts, but I don't usually share them on paper. When I share anything about myself that seems extremely cranky or negative, it's because I know it's universal. I don't write about my family in any way that will hurt any of them. People at, in writing classes always ask, what about stuff that, from my childhood that w really makes somebody look terrible? I say, well, first of all, you own everything that happened to you. And if they wanted you to write more warmly about them, they should have behaved better. And also, this is why fiction exists. If people are still alive, you turn it into a novel or a screenplay right. instead of a memoir. And then you can write, if you make it be the olive-skinned Catholic family down the street instead of your own pale, blue-veined family, they don't even recognize themselves. People never recognize themselves. <laughs> I changed their hair color and their height. And it's literally true. I mean, in my second, third novel, Joe Jones, there was a character named the world's most, her name was Faye, the world, and her nickname was the world's most negative person. Because no matter what you mentioned, it'd be like this malignant word association game. And you'd say, oh, it's so beautiful and blew out. And she'd talk about melanoma or seagull poop, you know? 
and um, the bacteria in the seagull poop. And I just used everything she said. And um, I just wrote it down and used it for a bit, but I changed her height, I changed her hair color, I changed her age, and, and put it in a novel. And when um, the novel came out, after about a month or so, she called me and said, hey, do you want to go for a walk? You know, I said, oh, sure, hard in my throat, so busted. And then we got together and said, oh, I just love that book. I said, oh, thank you. And she said, you know, that character Faye was so hilarious. And I went, and then she said, I know someone just like that. It's so good. It's so good. And also the fact is that with all creativity, mostly I know about writing, the first draft, it says in Bird Vibrator, the first draft is a child's draft. You just get it all down. The second draft is the parent's draft and you clean it all up. And at that point, you can take out some of the stuff that maybe seems harsh. And the third draft is a dentist draft and you go through it tooth by tooth and paragraph by paragraph and you wiggle and jiggle and floss and a lot of teeth are just fine. Some of them need a little attention, maybe professional help. So I can say I'm kind of pathetically kind and most women that I've known are. And it's a huge victory to stop being quite so kind all the time and to be and to sometimes say things that maybe you feel bad about, but then you go back and you say, you know what, I didn't mean it like that. And I'm sorry I said it, but the truth of what I need for you to hear is. And then maybe some truth and healing comes out of that. That's so good. Okay. One of the last questions I was going to ask you. So you said that right around that time, you said around 40, you said I had a five-year-old and I, I didn't have much money. So for people listening who have admired you, who look at themselves and say, well, I'm 40 and I've never made a career yet out of this. I thought it was too late for me. What do you say to women who are figuring out more of themselves later on? Is it too late or can we find a way to do it? You know what? There is only now, there is only the holy moment and I would tell my Sunday school kids, this is the day that God has made, and only you can ruin it. So if you, mostly when I would have big groups of students, they, we'd spend a lot of each class listening to them explain why they weren't getting any writing done, and how as soon as they moved up to the Russian River where it's really quiet, they were going to get to work, or right. how their last child, when their last child was out of the house, they were going to fill in the blank. And I always said to them, you're not, you know, if you don't do it now, you're not going to do it then. It's like thinking if you lose 20 pounds, you're going to start being really kind and respectful to yourself and, and seeing your body with more respect. And I said, if you're not okay at 180, you're not going to be okay at 150. It's an inside job. And so my, with my students, I said, you're going to have to meet me halfway one day at a time, if you're going to get your creative work done, you know, and people say, well, you know, I go to the gym four days a week, this is before COVID. And I'd say, can you go three days? You know, I feel so great if I go four days and I go, how much writing are you getting done? Well, I haven't actually started yet. Okay. Can you give up one day of going to the gym and have four days where you might write for an hour? Well, but, and they're always explaining why they can't get to it. And I'd say, you got to stop not writing, you know, your right. days are spent not writing. And if you want to start writing, you got to meet me halfway, you got to find me some time. 
Find me the two hours that Jim takes. You have to get there, you work out for an hour, you shower, you drive home. It's two and a half hours. What do you do at night? What do you do at 10 o'clock? Well, I watch the 10 o'clock news. Can you give me that half hour? Well, it really helps me unwind. I'd say you don't really seem that unwound, plus you pay this enormous amount of money to be here and you're not getting any work done. What if you did a half an hour at 10 o'clock every night? So it's never too late. Lots of the writers that people love most started late. And so it's like you stop not writing, you stop not dancing, you stop not writing songs, you stop not choreographing dance numbers, you know, and maybe you're choreographing them for the for the, the old folks at a home. Maybe you're choreographing them for, you know, middle school kids who all hate their bodies anyway. And maybe you're doing a, a restoration kind of dance with sixth graders who hate themselves. And then you say, oh, I don't want to do it. I want to do it at a bigger on stage. Well, that's very nice, but, but learn how to do it here first. Learn to do it for this group of people and then take it, you know, take it bigger, take it bigger, get good at it, get better at it, get good at it, do it every day, do it badly, find a way to communicate this one thing that you've started doing, that you've gotten better at, it's like learning piano, if you play every day you will get better, and then you can try harder and harder arrangements, or writing exercises, or you know, you can bite off more and do it a little bit better, but you know, it doesn't happen down the road. It just doesn't, we don't know if we'll be here down the road. So you do it today. You figure out the half hour, 45 minute pod you can give to me as a debt of honor to your own soul that you have longed to start doing this. And as a debt of honor today, you're going to do it from 3 to 3.45. And I can promise you, it probably won't go well, but you're going to feel different for the rest of the afternoon and all night. It's so beautiful. I just feel so nourished and, and filled up spending this time with you. Tell us where we can find the book, where we can find more of what you're doing in the world and follow along. You can find it anywhere. Just, you know, go to your favorite independent bookstore. If you, if you can't get out, go to Amazon. I am so out there and available. If you if you want a book on creation, creativity, get Bird by Bird. If you want to see what you and I have been talking about this last hour, get Dust Knife Bank, get it anywhere. Yeah. Well, I'm sure everybody knows you already, but this was just such a gift that you are just so humble and so generous to oh, have shared you. all of that. You're, yeah. You have such a beautiful spirit and I just thank feel you. like what a gift to have been around you. Thank you so much for this. We're going to put all the links in the show notes and, and I have no doubt. I mean, everything you do turns to gold. So thank you. Thank you for having me. I love being here with you for an hour. Now I'm going to go eat. I'm starving. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. So how amazing is Anne? Here are the takeaways. Number one, be open for business, be available for any idea, be permeable and be curious about all of life. Number two, take the action. The insight will follow. Number three, don't try to figure it out. Let the thing inside of you help you get it done. Number four, one of the keys to the kingdom of inside reserves of new material and insight and awakening is, I don't know. Number five, create what you love to come upon. It tells you that something deep in your soul is trying to get your attention. Number six, start where you are. Break through perfectionism by doing it badly more often. 
Number seven, the point is not to try harder. The point is to resist less. And number eight, there is only now. There is only the holy moment. So do it today. All right, now I want to celebrate some of the alumni from me to do this. Kathleen said, I got my first one-on-one coaching client and she chose my most expensive package, which made me feel like I had a real business. Well, Kathleen, congratulations. You do have a real business. I'm so excited for you. It just goes to show that the money is out there and the people who will pay you for those high ticket items are out there. You just have to make those relationships. I'm sure that this is the first of many more clients to come. So keep us posted on how it goes. You can all go give Kathleen some love. Her website is kathleenpierce.ca. Another epic win is from Nancy. She said, since graduating from Made to Do This in December 2020, I found the courage to start my jewelry line. I went through a period where I felt a lot of imposter syndrome and not much confidence in my abilities. Today, I realize that I just need to start and I will find more clarity and courage. I've had my first pendant go through production in silver and heavy 24 karat gold plated with a jewelry casting company. And my second is on the way. It's so exciting. You made me realize that I could do it. I'm so inspired for women to wear jewelry that reminds them that they have everything inside of themselves already that they need to fulfill their dreams. Wearing this jewelry will remind them every day of their greatness and their abilities and to trust the process. Nancy, I'm just so excited for you. It's incredible. It's true that the clarity and the courage come when you just start to take one step at a time. Your jewelry is beautiful and I know it's going to give so many women that boost of confidence to feel worthy of being themselves. Please stay in touch so we can hear more about the amazing jewelry line you're working on. Right now, I want to announce our giveaway winner. So we're giving away some adorable swag every Monday and Thursday. If you want a chance to win a sweatshirt or or a mug, all you have to do is leave a review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Or you could just go live on your Instagram stories and talk about the podcast and just tag me at kathy.heller. I will also be reposting those shares because it, it means so much to me. Today's winner is Aaron Hartz. And Aaron said, full of love, Kathy's podcast is bringing me closer to what I want most in the world, to learn how to bring love and healing with me everywhere I go. Thank you, Kathy. I absolutely love the Dr. Phil interview too. It's worth a second listen. Thank you so much. Thank you, Aaron. And thank you all of you for being here. It really, it means so much. Your time is so valuable. And so I don't take it for granted. And speaking of being together and your time, I am doing a retreat. It's called Welcome Soul. It's going to be on Sunday, April 11th, virtually from 10 to 6. There'll be a lot of time for reflection and some beautiful journaling exercises, meditation. There's going to be a breathwork session. Uh, we're doing an early bird pricing right now for $197. If you want to get in on this, that price is going to be good for the next few days. Just go to kathyheller.com slash retreat or welcomesoul.com. Either one will get you there. We would love to see you. I'd love to spend the day with you. I think this is going to be incredibly transformative and healing and help you welcome yourself home, help you step into this calling. I can't wait to do more things like this. And so I'm, I'm really just so excited that we can be together and do something that's that's just a higher vibration for all of us. So if you want more information, if you want to sign up, go to kathyheller.com slash retreat, or you can go to welcomesoul.com. I'd love to see you guys there. We have some amazing conversations coming, so many good guests. So please make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen because it is indeed free to subscribe. And before we go, I'm curious if you felt that this episode inspired you. Can you think of someone who would benefit from listening to this? And I know I say this at the end of every episode, but you'd be surprised. You know, there are conversations that we have that other people will feel 
lifted by, and it costs nothing. It costs nothing to send them the episode. It's free. We are making this content now every single day. I spend so many hours of my life delivering this and it costs nothing for you to share it. And so if you think that somebody could benefit from it, please do, please do share it, text them the link or email them the link. And then I would love for Anne to get to hear what you thought of this episode. So when you post about the show, if you post about the show on Instagram, tag me at kathy.heller and I'll repost and tag Anne at Anne Lamont. That's A-N-N-E-L-A-M-O-T-T because I know she would just love to see that her words are making an impact. I love you guys. I'll leave you with a song of mine and I will talk to you tomorrow. If you dare me to